Raiders of the Lost Ark first introduced audiences to Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones in 1981, co-created by George Lucas of Star Wars fame and directed by the legendary Steven Spielberg. This adventure takes place in 1936. The Ark of the Covenant The Sankara Stones The Holy Grail The Crystal Skull The Dial of destiny. Each of these artifacts has a different origin, beginning in a different time period, in a different part of the world with no discernible connections, except one. Podcasters Assemble would like to invite you on a trip around the world full of adventure. Fraught with danger, a colorful cast of characters. I learned to hate you in the last ten years. Ever since you got into my club, you haven't been able to take your eyes off me. Beauty, beautiful <laughs> And led by the only person qualified for the job. Indy. 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 Indiana Jones. Oh, excuse me, uh, Dr. Henry Jones Jr. Don't call me that, please. Podcasters, assemble. Yo, this is Corey with The World is My Burrito. G'day, I'm Elise. I'm from season four of the Super Switch Club. This is Justin Aki, graphic designer and one half of Significant Otter Co. Hey, this is Zach from the Neatcast and occasionally effing cultured in a ton of other podcasts. Hello, I'm Stephen White, co-host of Horror Ramblings, Inspired by a Weeboo, and Super Mega Crash Brothers Turbo. This is Eric Slater from Epic Fails of History, Too Young for This Trek, and Comic Zombie. This is Troidal Power from the Power Playthroughs Podcast. Douglas Gale, co-host of the Xbox Game Pass podcast called Game Game Pass. Hi, this is Jamie Chambers with the Chainsaw History Podcast, where one of our shows is No Time for Love, Dr. Jones, an Indiana Jones rewatch podcast where we're going through his life chronologically, starting with the young Indiana Jones Chronicles from the 90s. Here we are, back again for yet another season of Podcasters Assemble. Brand new season, a cavalcade of indie podcasters giving their opinions on whatever franchise is getting ready to release a new entry, so we can shit on that one when it comes out. It's like Twitter, only more organized. Indiana Jones, alright. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Nope. Today we're talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. If you call it Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you are wrong. That is not the title. What the f***? Off to a smashing start. But I'm here and I'm ready to see if there are any opinions that might surprise me. I don't mind Crystal Skull. I'm sure that when it comes to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, nothing will surprise me. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk Raiders of the Lost Ark. 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Dr. Jones, you're a man of many talents. <laughs> the Ark it is something that man was not meant to disturb. An army which carries the Ark before it. 
is invincible. Indiana Jones! Let her go. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? I'm going after that truck. Oh. I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark is my favorite movie of all time. Indiana Jones. Ah, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's just something about Indiana Jones that really just makes you want to be an archaeologist. Number one, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. So this movie came out in 1981 and I came out in 1984. So this movie's always been a part of my life even if I didn't see it until about, I want to say, 89. As a kid growing up in the 80s, I remember when at least two of the first three Indiana Jones adventures were released. Raiders came out when I was still a mere infant or toddler. I was one, damn it. First time seeing this film. This is going to be another one of those uh, childhood VHS tales. And honestly, I'm not sure that we ever owned any of these movies. Um, if we did, we only owned one of them, and I don't know which, but uh, I'm pretty sure these were all just recorded on VHSs. So much like the original Star Wars from 77, which was retitled to Episode 4 New Hope, Raiders of the Lost Ark has since been retitled to Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, which seems to be a bit unnecessary, but whatever. Not the title! It's not called Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, is it? It's just called Raiders of the Lost Ark. If you're one of those people who calls this film Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, stop. Sure, there's been new artwork that has that unnecessary bit in, but when the title appears in the film, it reads Raiders of the Lost Ark, so don't forget that. That's weird. Also worth noting, even though this was the first movie released, it's actually the second one in the series chronologically, with Temple of Doom being a prequel. That's weird which we'll talk about more next time. This movie came out um, a few years before I was born, so it took me a little while to actually watch it. My dad took me to see it in the theaters in 1981, and it instantly established Indiana Jones as my favorite fictional character. You think how much this movie has influenced the world completely. Uh, I mean, all the movies that came after it, all the references, all the parodies. Anyway, I always remember seeing bits and pieces when my father would rewatch them on many occasions. There were scenes I would always remember, but the rest of the film would be a faint memory. Beyond that, there was just grown-up content, and I didn't really care about that. For many years as a youth, I thought the movie was kind of boring. It wasn't until I was much older when I purchased my own set of Indiana Jones movies that I truly sat down and watched Raiders of the Lost Ark from beginning to end, and it was that viewing that changed my whole perspective on this film. Uh, this is also one of the few vintage films I've actually seen in theaters, even if I didn't see it when it came out. I want to say back in middle school, my class got to go see it at the San Marco Theater. Rip. It was a historic theater built in 1938 and just closed this past year in 2023. I think my first time watching this movie, and then I can only assume I binged watched the remaining two. Yes, the remaining two. Uh, was when I was about 18. The big thing that stands out in this series went on that everything is real. Seriously. Everything. Think about it. I don't mind Crystal Skull. I don't give a shit that aliens are part of the indie verse. In fact, I have a theory that that 
kind of explains anything else that you wonder about in Indiana Jones. Indy has a background in the occult, so they already have studies in the occult. Uh, the Bible, Old Testament at least, is real. Do the Incans have gods that were real? Like, holy crap, there was some crazy stuff in the New World. Uh, I can only imagine some of the um, the Mexican gods or something else. If that was all real, holy crap. So, I mean, Indy has to know the world is super weird. But throughout the series, he refuses to remember that gods are real and supernatural things uh, are, are real. I mean, e even in the next movie, which was a prequel, he battles a guy with actual magical powers. And now he discounts all the things in this movie. I mean, at least he remembered not to look at the face of God when Nazis opened the Ark. I think a read for me is that the Ark of the Covenant and all of that kind of stuff is alien technology, not like God stuff. I think it's just technology that, that people you know, believed came from gods. And I think that also maybe could be, you know, if you squint at it and then try real hard, could explain these like ancient super contraption kind of things that Indiana Jones runs into like, yeah, also aliens. So sort of whatever you have a question about, like how the f does that make sense in Indiana Jones? An alien did it. That's all. And also just to find some things about me that, are true to this day. Like, I love history, and I think punching Nazis is great. It changed my life. So, in order to understand the DNA of where Indiana Jones comes from, you really can't um, untangle him from his creator, George Lucas, or his other famous creation, which is Star Wars. To me, one of the really cool things about these movies are all the connections to some of my other favorite franchises. First time seeing the film, I definitely would have been back on VHS way back in the day, uh, around the time that I was probably introduced to Star Wars. So, I don't know, first, second grade-ish. And uh, they were great movies. And both of those came from Lucas's love of the old Saturday matinee serials uh, from the classic days, uh, in the golden age of Hollywood. So you'd have your feature films, and then you'd have these short, episodic adventure stories for kids and there were sci-fi versions like um, Flash Gordon being a famous one and there was pulp action like one of his was Don Winslow of the Navy was one of Lucas's favorite early ones. I don't remember a time when I hadn't seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is a movie that I just remember growing up on. It was out of this desire to bring those style stories and Lucas very much wanted to do Flash Gordon. Uh, unfortunately, he couldn't get the rights, so he ended up figuring out his own kind of uh, space opera that was an homage to those style uh, serialized movies, and that's where we get Star Wars. Now, he had two simultaneous things he wanted to move forward, both of them as this love letter to those classic Adventures Plus or sort of these classic adventure movies of Hollywood. So he, so he had the Star Wars side of uh, things, and then he had this character he had created called Indiana Smith. Indiana Smith was a uh, two-fisted archaeologist and treasure hunter with a bullwhip and a hat. And he had this very kind of look that Lucas had in mind from the very beginning. And he was actually moving forward in the 1970s on his Indiana Smith project. And he wanted a collaborator to uh, work with him, develop the script, and maybe even direct. And he got a friend, a guy he knew, named Philip Kaufman. And so they were working forward on this uh, Indiana Smith project when a, when a guy named Clint Eastwood came a-calling. Uh, because he wanted to make the movie The Outlaw Josie Wales, and he wanted Philip Kaufman to be the writer-director. Now, random side note, Philip Kaufman ultimately bowed out of that project because he found out th there was some problems he had with the script, and possibly because he realized the guy who wrote the novel 
and I think the original screenplay for the Outlaw Josie Wills was a guy named uh, Asa Carter, who history knows as the guy who wrote the Segregation Now, Segregation Forever speech for Governor George Wallace of Alabama. It, it, it and the Bond movies both, and Star Wars, they're all kind of in the same range of movies that I like watched a lot of when I was a kid and then just kept watching them. So I don't really have like a formative time that I saw Raiders. It was just always there. So as the story goes, George Lucas pitched the idea for the film to Steven Spielberg while they were on vacation. According to Hollywood legend, uh, it all started with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas sitting on a beach somewhere chatting about their plans for the future. Spielberg tells Lucas that he always wanted to direct a 007 movie. And Lucas tells him he has a better idea. It seems Spielberg was expressing interest in directing a James Bond film, to which Lucas retorted, I've got a much better idea. I would do a Lucas voice, but I don't really know one. Now, somewhere in the multiverse, Spielberg said no and pursued that Bond picture, which you know he could have easily secured. While his name didn't have the gravitas that it does now, this was still after Jaws and Close Encounters, and E.T. was the following year after Raiders. While those titles don't scream spy director, I don't think the Broccoli family would have turned him away either. He was a bona fide moneymaker. And begins to tell them all about this concept for a period piece action adventure set in the 30s, inspired by the old black and white serials that they grew up on. Anyway, Lucas's pitch was to recreate the heroes from the matinee serial seen in the 1930s. In a time when television was still two decades away, the old Nickelodeon was the place to forget your troubles for a few hours watching swashbuckling adventures of daring dude that typically ended on cliffhangers to get some audiences to return to cinemas for the next thrilling conclusion. Amazing that doesn't quite work the same way today. So, just like George Lucas wanted to make a Flash Gordon movie, Steven Spielberg was desperate to make a James Bond movie. They were talking about what their next projects would be, and that's when Lucas, on this vacation in Hawaii, famously told the story of Indiana Smith to his buddy Steve, and Steven Spielberg just fell in love with this idea of doing an American answer to James Bond. A series of adventure movies with action set pieces and, you know, beautiful ladies and exotic locations. But, you know, grittier and dirtier and, and less suave. Furthermore, why can't we bring theater shorts back like The Three Stooges, Tom and Jerry, or even Superman? Little bonuses like that sure would entice me to go to the movie theater more. But I digress. The other part is, of course, that Steven Spielberg hated the name Indiana Smith, and possibly because there's a, a famous Western starring Steve McQueen called Nevada Smith. And so just a simple name change to Jones, and Steven Spielberg was on board to direct this movie. So really, Indiana Jones is the brainchild of one of the biggest directors of all time and the creator of Star Wars with a heavy dose of inspiration from the classic James Bond movies. Then there's the protagonist himself, Indiana Jones. Can you even imagine this character being played by anyone else? Steven Spielberg instantly thought of Harrison Ford as the perfect choice to play Indiana Jones, but George Lucas didn't want to for no other reason than Harrison Ford's already been in American Graffiti, and he had been in Star Wars. So he didn't want it to be like what we would call now like a Tim Burton and Johnny Depp situation where it's like, oh, we're just going to see the same guy from the same filmmaker over and over again. Harrison Ford is the embodiment of this character. 
Prior to this movie, Harrison Ford was relatively unknown outside of his iconic role in the original Star Wars. He first appeared in George Lucas's American Graffiti, but was famously working as a part-time carpenter when he got the role of Han Solo. So he was sort of reluctant, so they, they tried out a bunch of other actors. For example, Peter, Peter Coyote, screen tested for Nina Jones, uh, Tim Matheson, and uh, then of course they, they got a hold of Tom Selleck and they really liked what they saw. In fact, go on YouTube, you can see some of those screen tests, uh, that footage where, where it's, uh, in this case, it was Tom Selleck and Sean Young as Indiana Jones and Marion Ravenwood doing the scene in the bar where they first met up again. Favorite actor is going to be Harrison Ford. He really steals the show in this. He was always meant to be Indiana Jones. And look, I get it. Schwarzenegger is the Terminator. Robert Englund is Freddy Krueger. Stallone is Rocky and also Rambo. For behind-the-scenes trivia, Harrison Ford was uh, not necessarily the, the initial Indiana Jones. While other actors have portrayed Superman after Christopher Reeve, you can't help but look at how he personified the character better than anyone else before or since. He is Superman for me. So to think we could have had Tom Selleck in this role instead of Harrison Ford is just mind-boggling. Thank God he was stuck on Magnum P.I. Tom Selleck, that's right, Magnum P.I. Uh, originally was who Spielberg and Lucas settled on, but uh, since Selleck was under contract with CBS for Magnum P.I., they would not allow him to play Indiana Jones. Fortunately or unfortunately, Tom Selleck had signed to shoot a pilot for a show called Magnum P.I. So he did eventually get to play a similar role to Indy in High Road to China. Fun fact, in the final season of the original Magnum P.I., and I must specify original now since there are remakes and reboots abound of everything, they actually did do a parody episode of sorts where Tom Selleck got to wear an outfit very reminiscent of Indies and search for some long-lost artifact. And then I also remember there was an episode of Magnum P.I., I think it was actually like Legend of Lost Art or something, where he got to spoof Raiders uh, in that episode. He still wasn't rocking it as well as Harrison Ford. Any fans of 90s cartoons, however, might be interested to know if you watch Chippendale's Rescue Rangers, you've got one character who is dressed like Indiana Jones with a fedora and a leather jacket, the other one dressed up like Magnum P.I. in a Hawaiian shirt. So literally both are alternate versions of Indiana Jones. And what if Tom Selleck had done both Magnum and Indy? Would that have meant that the creator of Chippendale Rescue Rangers was just a huge fan of Tom Selleck or just the characters he played? Ah, the mysteries of the universe. And I think it might have been because he was going to be in a George Lucas and Steven Spielberg movie, they realized, oh, this guy's got something, and they called him back. And of course, Magnum P.I. was on forever. And then, of course, finally, when they were like, well, now who are we going to get to play Indiana Jones? George Lucas is like, fine, let's call Harrison. You know, Tom, Se I like Tom Selleck. Good actor, entertaining, a fantabulous mustache. A uh, series would have been a bit different. I think Harrison Ford, I think it worked out with him portraying Indiana Jones. Just a year after The Empire Strikes Back dropped, Raiders hit theaters in 81, and Harrison Ford became a megastar overnight. Like a little bit of behind the scenes as well. When getting people for Blade Runner, I'm, I think it was Ridley Scott who went out to the Raiders of the Lost Ark set and met Harrison Ford to see because he was very interested. This is new Harrison Ford, mind you. You know, this isn't like established actor. Uh, and this movie hadn't even been released. So he's on the set 
goes to meet Harrison Ford, uh, who shows up in Indy's hat. Now, Deckard from Blade Runner was supposed to be your classic noir detective with, you know, the coat and the hat and stuff. Uh, but as soon as he saw Harrison Ford walk up to him, uh, he was like, well, can't do the hat anymore because this other character, you know, like has this iconic look and we can't have Harrison Ford back to back in hats. Supposedly, Ford wanted to be killed off in Empire and begrudgingly came back in Return of the Jedi, and only agreed to appear in The Force Awakens if they killed off his character. In stark contrast to his time as Han Solo, however, he apparently has always loved being a Deanna Jones. Going through our cast, we have Harrison Grumpy Ford, Grumpy Harrison Ford, Grumpy Ford, whatever he goes by now as Indiana Jones. Harrison Ford, I have to say, isn't that great of an actor? But he's just so entertaining and he has such great facial expressions and he just looks like he's just there just to have a good time. He doesn't take it too seriously and he just brings that energy into all the roles that he has and you just get really pulled into whatever he's doing. It's, it's, he's just really fun. What's interesting about Harrison Ford, at the same time this movie was playing, he was also Han Solo. So the top action adventure actor was in the top two franchises at the same time. Uh, notably being Empire Strikes Back and Indiana Jones. It's easy to say that Han Solo and Indiana Jones are practically the same character, but honestly, despite some similarities here and there, there are some pretty distinct differences between the two. Sure, they're both charming scoundrels with a heart of gold who kind of suck at everything, but also manage to luck their way out of tight spots. And yes, they're both initially skeptical of mysticism until they see real-life proof of the supernatural, but... Han Solo doesn't have a doctorate, and Indy doesn't speak Wookiee. Enough said. The other thing to note would be where the name Indiana comes from in the first place. Another area where Star Wars and Indiana Jones cross over because George Lucas owned a giant Malamute named Indiana. So he took around his convertible, called his co-pilot, and that became the basis of Chewbacca, having this just this big bear of a beast sitting next to him in his ride. And then, of course, he loved the name so much, he named the character of Indiana Smith slash Jones after his favorite dog. And that little piece of trivia got thrown into the later movies, which is why they even said, oh, Indiana wasn't even his real name. It was just the name of his favorite dog. And then in the second movie, you have the name Willie, which was the name of Steven Spielberg's dog. Years and years later, during the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, they named uh, Indiana Jones' son Mutt Williams in honor of composer John Williams. Karen Allen as Marion Ravenwood, Paul Freeman as Renee Belloc, Ronald Lacey as Major Arnold Tote, Tot. How do I say that name? I'm I'm gonna go with Tote. John Reese Davies as Gimli, I mean Sala, and Denholm Elliott as Marcus Brody. Now I've seen this movie a ton, but all the movies from the early '80s tend to merge together in my brain. I think what makes this film work so well is everyone involved. Again. Steven Spielberg already directed two big hits, not to mention one of the best TV movies I've ever seen. Seriously, if you've never seen Duel, I highly recommend it. The man has proven he had what it takes to direct a solid film. And yes, I am aware that 1941 came out before this, so there's a little bit of a blemish of sorts. I would speak of that film, but I'm trying to stay on topic here. George Lucas had also proven himself to be a visionary thanks in no small part to Star Wars. Sure, he had made a name for himself with THX 1138 and American Graffiti, but the worldwide phenomenon that Star Wars became sealed the deal. It also scared him away from directing another feature for 20 years, which may have been a good thing when you take a look at everything he directed after the original Star Wars. 
And if you haven't already, definitely give our backlog a listen. Back on Season 2, we covered the Star Wars movies. On Season 3, we reviewed all the Bond movies. And just last season, we talked about Steven Spielberg's other giant franchise, Jurassic Park, which was also heavily influenced by George Lucas and his special effects studio, Industrial Light and Magic. That's another one too. That movie was originally just Star Wars, not this New Hope crap. Make Star Wars Star Wars again. Sorry. Anyway, uh, the point being is that George Lucas is a great idea man. He just needs a little help with execution. It's the set pieces. It was all fun, bright, loud. For the longest time, I kept remembering Indy saving Marion from a snow-capped mountain tent. But then I just remembered that it was the movie Willow. All these movies were on HBO on repeat for like the longest time. So, I mean, that's pretty much why I remember all of them kind of shoved together in my brain. I think some of the most interesting stuff is the thing we never got to see. The original script is so wildly different and it was so ended in such a strange way, it probably would not have made audiences happy. I had a part-time job repairing and detailing pinball machines and came across the Indiana Jones penny. It was a big enough collector's item then and I can only assume it's a massive collector's item now. It is one of the few wide-body pinball machines that they made, so it's it's extra fat. Um, and it featured bits and pieces from all three of the films. It's it's really, really cool. If you ever have a chance to play one, massive recommend. I love to play it, but I never understood the context of any of the quotes or any of the things on the play field. Um, so I thought I'd better go and watch them. You know, I, I, I know I'd seen them a couple of times as a child, but what really got me into Indiana Jones and the franchise would actually be the Lego Indiana Jones game. A buddy of mine bought it and it was very like unexpected. That wasn't really his type of game, but he said that the reviews are really good and he's like, why not? I want to try something different. Ended up having a blast. I think we beat most, if not all of the game in like a day. And I ended up buying it on my own and just continuing to play it. Uh, I still have it, and every couple of years still crack it open. It's so much fun, and you really get to, like, relive and experience all of the Indiana Jones movies. Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of the most thrilling and exciting action-adventure movies ever made. Hands down. I'm tempted to say the most, but I like to keep my opinions loose. It changed my life. The music in this movie is so great. Oh man, that John Williams score is straight fire. And so with that, I am very familiar with the Indiana Jones theme song. The theme song has got to be one of the most catchy, upbeat, and memorable themes to a movie. Da 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 all of John Williams' music is so distinct, but so like each other. Uh, as I mentioned back in Jurassic Park, like that is one of the three things that you'll find me humming if I'm just randomly humming something. Uh, I've actually been trying to hum the indie song for the past few minutes as I'm writing this, but I keep getting Jurassic Park in my head. 
Right genre, wrong song. I think one of the best things I have ever seen is this movie played in a concert hall with a live orchestra doing the entire score. Man, the music in this film, again, John Williams uh, conducting, creating. It was absolutely incredible. I, I love the theme. It is now my preferred way to watch movies, but unfortunately it doesn't happen all that often. And then now, you know, it's like dun 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 dun. It, it takes a minute to come back to me because they all merge together in my brain. I don't know about you, but like I hear that whenever I do anything to this day mildly exciting in my life. I paid a bill. Dun 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 dun. dun. Like the music in the, the movie is great overall, it's very adventurous. But honestly, the live score from this film, just making it that much more immersive, was just outstanding. While all the actors and even the writers and directors are top-notch, the film is further elevated by the score from the legendary composer John Williams. He's done so many iconic films, so many scores, and this is one of them. The Raiders March is iconic. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows when you hear the Indiana Jones theme exactly uh, what it means, what movie it's from, movies at, at this point. It's as iconic as the themes to Star Wars, Superman, and Jaws. Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Superman, etc., etc. All which were composed by John Williams and all are remembered to this day. The man who invented the soundtrack of our childhoods. But like, for me, you know, Indiana Jones theme, it's, it's better than like Star Wars. It's better than most themes that are out there. Some may criticize his work for some reason or another, which I can understand, but you can't deny his work as a composer is phenomenal. In fact, one of my favorite compositions of his comes out of the John Wayne film, The Cowboys. It doesn't initially sound like his work, but certain cues and instrumentation seep through in a good way. It just, you can't go wrong with John Williams and, and the score of Indiana Jones. It's just, I feel like it conveys everything that you need to know about what you're getting yourself into. John Williams can do no wrong. Once again, this man can do no wrong. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you're a fan of the show, please help us out by subscribing on Spotify. And while you're there, give us a five-star rating and share with your friends. Every download really does help, so thank you so much for keeping this podcast going. The word bad means not good, and the word ass means in contexts where it's not referring to a literal donkey, well, you know. And yet, when we put these two words together, synergy happens, we reverse the polarity, and bam, badass. And that's where our new iHeartRadio podcast, Badass of the Week, comes in. I'm Ben Thompson. And I'm Dr. Pat Larish. And every week, we're telling stories of the most badass figures in history, mythology, and even fiction. These are tales of ninjas, pirates, Vikings, scientists, and explorers full of guts, glory, and everything in between. And even the occasional badass dog. 
You mean like Goofy? No, I'm not talking about Goofy. I'm talking about Sergeant Stubby. I'm talking about war hero dogs. I'm talking about a bear named Wojtek that carried artillery shells for the Polish artillery during World War II. Nazi fighting walking bears. This is the show. Listen to Badass of the Week on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So getting into the movie. All right, let's let's get into this this plot, this film. Man, I love the fade in on this movie when the Paramount logo fades into the mountain in wherever the f*** they are. Mm, that's great. Movie starts in the middle of a jungle in 1936. The Paramount logo fades to a mountain in the jungles of South America. I, I think, doesn't that become kind of a hallmark, hallmark of the series? I'm sure other movies have done it before. Um, if not, if Indiana Jones was the first, hey, kudos to you, Mr. Spielberg. What a great choice. And we basically get a cold open just like a James Bond movie. We have what looks like an American out with a, a couple of um, local guides as they are making their way through the jungle. We're not getting a good look yet at the uh, what we're presuming to be the archaeologist. I think one thing uh, really important to note, especially for Raiders of the Lost Ark, is to remember that Indiana Jones was introduced as almost an anti-hero in the beginning. The opening scene really sets the tone. The opening sequence of this movie is amazing. One of the great things about this intro is that Indiana Jones just shows up mid-adventure as a fully formed character. You know, what's going on? This man of mystery over here. We always think of him the way he has been built up over the films, but him really establishing himself as a hero was kind of done in the first movie, because when we first meet him, he's a menacing figure. We only see him from the back in silhouette. What a great way to hide the as of as yet barely known Harrison Ford. I love how we aren't treated to the face of our beautiful Indiana Jones. They show him from the back or below the face. Until just over three minutes in. And there's so many scenes where he's constantly far away and there are two cronies and you almost feel like a third crony. The other people are sort of intimidated. Because like, you know, we don't know who he is. And it's like, God, what, what, you know, this guy's nuts. They're like, yo, this guy's nuts. And you're like, this guy's nuts. Eventually we get to a nice little water hole where one of the guides tries to uh, double cross our leader. And then whoop When upon hearing a gun being cocked, he tilts his head to the side like a puppy and spins around and whips the gun out of the would-be trader's hand. And then, of course, when a guy tries to pull a gun on him, he immediately turns around, bullwhips the gun out of the guy's hand. And steps out of the shadows. This is where we see the iconic whip being used to disarm one of the guides who runs off into the woods. The whipping hero is born and the BDSM community all over the world was just like clapping their hands in this moment. We see him uh, march forward and looking sort of dangerous and scary and the music tells us that he is a dangerous and scary man. And then we get our first look at Indiana Jones. Ah, just beautiful. Man, this movie starts off strong. The opening sequence of this movie is amazing. And the best action scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark and any movie ever uh, is is the, the Temple Escape. It is such a classic, often referenced and parodied in pop culture. Damn, that is one tattered-ass map. Similar to what happens with Jurassic Park, you have, in a very short amount of time, a lot of things I feel conveyed about 
what you're in for with the movie. Oh, hey, look, it's a young Doc Ock from the Spider-Man franchise. Hey, it's, uh, it's Doc Ock. Still fun to see Molina in one of his earliest film roles. Alfred Molina. Neat. So starting the goofiness off early with the uh, slow skull turn when he finds the body of the previous explorer, you know, this right here certainly is like the embodiment of the franchise, this moment where it's very graphic and still silly. How do people in movies so casually wipe massive spider webs away? Gotta love Indy's cool head when all those giant spiders are crawling all over him. Dude, you have a torch, like a fire torch. Set the f***ing things on fire. Bugger South American spiders. So Indy and Dr. Octavius make their way into the uh, the temple, past all the booby traps, which are very deadly. With Jurassic Park, it's kind of explaining the premise. Here, it's more of like letting you know the vibes that you're in for. And all of this uh, Legends of the Hidden Temple stuff is just, just awesome. Like... It, this it's it's great it's effective it's funny it's so good because it's got such a quiet setup and then it just becomes a crazy fun action adventure scene uh, as the music kicks in and Indy's whipping across the gap we get the first musical sting that we'll hear a lot during the action sequence dun 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 not exactly sure how any of these booby traps work but it's super cool and creative stuff Again, practical effects are where it's at. I will beat that dead horse until the day I die. It's going to be an adventure. The main character has a whip for no other reason other than it's cool. It's going to be a little spooky. Right on up to the Golden Idol, which of course is booby-trapped in this, I believe, Peruvian temple? Is, it, is that where we are? This part with the Golden Idol is so freaking great. That steely determination he shows, the smarts to fill a bag full of sand. Luckily, Indy knew to grab a bunch of sand to put in a bag. Because you never know when you're going to need sand in the spirit temple. Okay, so how much does sand weigh? Because I feel like that bag would need to be maybe double the size to even be close to the weight of that gold statue. And, And was able to judge the weight of the idol so that he could replace the... The idol with a bag? He has to match the weight exactly, and it looks like he has it for a moment, but nope. Which appears to work, but then doesn't. So Indy sets off all the uh, the booby traps, and the whole temple begins falling apart. Alfred Molina, who betrays Indy after, well, not really doing much of anything, but screaming like a little bitch while Indy navigates his way through dangerous traps. Hey, it's, uh, it's Doc Ock. Still fun to see Molina in one of his earliest film roles. I forgot... Uh, the betrayal homeboy got spiked. He gets double-crossed by the other guide who then gets killed by a booby trap. Bad people will sometimes win, but also die horrible deaths. Like, what a metal scene for the beginning of a movie. The movie loves fake-outs. We get our fake-outs here in this opening sequence. And I forgot there was this much graphic stuff. You know, even just this early on, so graphic. And that rolling ball of death is just so damn good. While this film's certainly iconic for several reasons, I can think of no other scene than the rolling boulder that became a staple of pop culture. So the best action sequence would... It, it's the boulder. It's easily running from the boulder. And then we get the iconic running away from the giant boulder scene that has been parodied quite a number of times. Sure, those of us who love the film and have seen it a hundred times over can pick many scenes that are iconic. 
but none have infiltrated the zeitgeist like that one did. In other shows and cartoons like The Simpsons. So a lot of people don't know about this super random Deep Cuts reference, but the giant rolling boulder was actually a nod to an old Uncle Scrooge McDuck comic from 1954 called The Seven Cities of Cibola. Apparently, George Lucas was a fan of the comic and took inspiration directly from this comic for this iconic scene. So yeah, Indiana Jones might not be who he is today if it wasn't for Scrooge McDuck. There's plenty of good fun in here, but I feel like the boulder, it's definitely the most iconic, except maybe for like the fighting sequence and the plane, the boxing sequence. How many parodies have we seen at this point? Several come to mind. The Simpsons, UHF, Muppet Babies, Christmas Vacation. I'm sure I'm missing plenty. Or that gif of Indiana Jones running away from a giant Jean-Luc Picard boulder that has a kitten walking on the back of it. Yeah, you know the gif I'm talking about. That thing's awesome. But, I don't know, to me the boulder is just better. Like, there's so much more intensity in that moment with the whole set shaking and just shit happening. That shit holds up to this day. Probably because it was a real frickin' boulder that nearly crushed Harrison Ford during filming. The boulder scene, best one in the film. Side question, so why is the place booby-trapped to not just kill you as you try to get the idol, but then just destroy the entire temple? But uh, Why? Why Why did they set that up this way? That if you get the idol, you're dead, and then no one else can get the idol again. Or they just dig through the, the rubble until they find a corpse clutching an idol. Did nobody workshop this? We get so much great character moments right off the bat in the way that Indy reacts to the situation. It, you see the character established as uh, uh, kind of uh, a max luck. Uh, Indiana Jones has a massive amount of plot armor. Um, he'll get in and out of jams, even if it doesn't make any logical sense, but it doesn't matter because it's fun. Like he, he put all of his stats into luck because he keeps failing, but he fails in a way that moves him forward. And that's just Indiana Jones throughout the entire series. He's, he's scrappy. He doesn't give up easily, despite the dire situations he finds himself in. Uh, but he's not perfect. He makes mistakes, he fumbles around, and is just making up everything as he goes. He's a bad luck charm, but always ends up on top by the end, and uh, we just love that about him. There's actually a really great uh, cinema therapy video about how Indy is all about adaptability. And I think it's a really important trait that we can all learn from, despite all his flaws as a character, as we'll definitely get into especially with this movie and throughout the movie we get these little glimpses of that like the character of belloc even says it out loud he says i am a shadowy reflection of you me and you are basically the same guy i'm just willing to go just a little bit further than you and all it would take is just one little push and you'd be just like me you had no principles at all so belloc was an interesting character man belloc what a bastard Who's also great. I love him as a nemesis character for, for Indy. Once Indy gets out, we meet Rene Belloc, who corners him and steals the idol because Belloc is paying all of the aboriginal local tribes to kill everybody? That's fun. Uh, he's a French archaeologist working for the Germans. Uh, he's like an evil Indiana Jones. He sucks. Like we see it. I mean, kind of like a mercenary archaeologist, which doesn't really make a lot of sense if he's supposed to be like this respected archaeologist guy. Then you got Paul Freeman amazingly portraying Belloc. Typically a television actor before this role, 
It surprises me he didn't have a wave of villainous roles thrown his direction that he took as a steady actor. And while people most definitely remember him from this film, some kids of the 90s might unknowingly know him as Ivan Ooze from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie. Once again proving he has a knack for playing a villain. It's nice to know that the throat slicing motion is relatable and identical hand sign in every language. I mean, he's in South America in the 1930s and the natives know what that means. Like that's, you know, crossing borders with murder, I guess. I mean, he's like Indy if Indy sold out. Indy is determined to get the Ark to the point where he chooses the Ark over Marion twice in the movie before he, she does like one point literally leaving her tied up with the Nazis. And because if he had set her loose, they would have found out where he is and he wanted to go get it. I love this reveal though, because the twist is that Indy is not after the golden idol for himself. He's trying to get it before Belloc. Within that first 15 minutes, we also learn that he's a professor and an adventurer. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot to convey right there in that first sequence. And I think all of it really, you know, informs the rest of this movie. I don't know about the rest of the movies themselves. It's been a while since I've seen them, so I don't remember. He's trying to preserve the artifact before the Nazis can get their hands on it, which is why the next movie, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, is actually a prequel because it's all about why Indy's not all about that fortune and glory lifestyle. Eh, at least not anymore. It isn't until the end of the movie that he reverses that choice and is literally willing to blow the Ark to smithereens in order to get the woman he loves back that he made the correct choice. What else do we get here in the first 15 minutes that is important? When Indy's running away from the natives and towards the plane, it looks like the same backdrop as the Jurassic Park Gallimimus scene. Well, Indy is able to escape to a waiting seaplane and... Wait, who's who's this doc guy? We, we never see him again, do we? Jock fishing. Oh, oh wait, his name is Jock. I totally forgot this guy existed, not gonna lie. Oi, that's just my pet snake, Reggie. I thought Mac was Indy's first Australian sidekick in Crystal Skull, and here I am totally forgetting that his first on-screen partner was an Aussie. Sorry, Elise. We find out that he's afraid of snakes, which of course you go, well, this must be a Chekhov's gun, and either this snake or this fear of snakes must come back at some point. Maybe? Yes? We'll have to wait and find out. We also get the reveal of Indy's Achilles heel, snakes. Like, where was the snake on the entire flight down to this area? Like, this is the first time that Indy knows this is here. This is such a great contrast to his cool-headedness with all the giant tarantulas crawling all over him. Aussies, y'all are just, y'all are just wildin'. Now, one trait of Indiana Jones that I can relate to is his fear of snakes. I hate snakes. Me too, buddy. Me too. And I love how the movie cuts to Dr. Jones as a professor at a university. Indy returns to the United States where he's a college professor. Uh, it really establishes that even though he goes on all these crazy globetrotting adventures, he's also, you know, got a career. And he's in it for the love of archaeology and history. Unlike Han Solo, whose initial motivation is basically just money before he joins up with the Rebellion and falls in love with the Space Princess. So Indy wanted to go to Marrakesh to buy back the Incan statue Belloc stole. He needed $2,000. Well, I'm pretty sure some liberal arts college didn't have the equivalent of $43,744.35 sitting around to buy antiquities for a museum and where are they at again? Yeah, it's like middle of nowhere. Like, it's it's not a big one. They're not in New York City or something. And can we all admit that Indy is, like, 
kind of a bad guy. Instead of preventing theft of artifacts, he's just stealing them first and putting them in a museum. And then the movie kind of immediately calls him out by hinting that what he's doing isn't exactly above board legal. And like I get, you know, there, there could be an argument where it's like if villains are only going to keep trying to steal something, you may as well put it in a museum. But it just seems like the end goal is still the same where like Indy is stealing stuff to sell it for money and the bad guys are stealing the same stuff to sell it for money. And at some point it'll end up in like someone's personal museum or collection that if they're a smart capitalist, they'll still charge people to see. So like, what is a museum really... Yeah, how is the museum better at this point than a villain? But I digress. And we see that uh, female students are infatuated with Dr. Jones. So a, a weird scene, you know, I guess it does add to the comedy, but like it just doesn't really feel like it fits. I want to do a specific shout out to that thirsty student with the love you written on her eyes. The girl with the love you on her eyelids. Even writing, I think it was love you on on the eyelids the student uh, man that 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 is taking horny on main to the next level and you are a queen uh, appreciate appreciate that dedication that dedication to thirst that dedication to horny that is amazing there's also this great moment where one of the young ladies in his class is giving him a look uh, she blinks and her eyelids read love you and it totally catches him off guard for a moment also nice crisp penmanship written on a eyelid i don't know if that was you doing it backwards in a mirror if your friend did it either way mm, top notch i think it's a good um i think it's good acting on ford's part and it can kind of be taken a couple different ways that's that's creepy and problematic i feel like that is something that does get like a little bit more disturbing as i get older like but i'd like to read this as the girls in his class just have a crush on him because he's freaking Harrison Ford and he's just aloof to it a uh, bit thrown by it I, I don't know it's just that's it's questionable and there's more problematic things to come in a little bit but either way at least he's a college professor so they're you know adults tip of the hat to you ma'am well done can we all admit that Indy is like kind of a bad guy anywho So the movie is about the handsome Indiana Jones who has been hired to go on a fetch quest and find the Ark of the Covenant before the Nazis can grab it and use it to talk to God. We get a whole lot of exposition dumps uh, setting up the search for the lost Ark of the Covenant. Indy is then briefed by two uh, army intelligence agents that, that the Nazi German forces are excavating over in Egypt because they're obsessed with the occult. And they need his help to learn what the Nazis are looking for. As a kid who did grow up in church, I was very well aware of the Ark of the Covenant and a lot of the rules that went with it. So, like, shame on these guys for not going to church and knowing everything about it. So, uh, another thing worth noting is the character Donovan, later seen in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, was originally the guy who recruited Indiana Jones to go after the Lost Ark. The government people were... We're, we're sort of ancillary to that storyline. I love that the elder professor is like, five years ago, I'd have gone after it myself. Like, dude, you are old. You're talking like maybe 15 years ago at minimum. You'd be in the shape to do what Indy just did. Indy and Marcus are able to deduce that the Nazis are seeking the Ark of the Covenant, which 
Hitler believes it will make their army invincible. In biblical mythology, the Ark was the resting place of the original Ten Commandment tablets after Moses led the Jewish people out of Egypt, as told in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament or the Torah in Hebrew tradition, if you want to go back a few hundred years earlier. The one thing that it doesn't tip its hand to in the opening is anything supernatural, out of the ordinary, uh, magical, aliens, that kind of thing, which I think is to its credit. I think it's good. There's clearly the end of the movie, spoiler alert, you know, you get the, you get the full whammy there. And I think the impact of that is heightened by only having one hint of it, one explicit hint of it early, uh, before the end of it, not early in the movie, but pretty late in the movie. So saving that, I think, um, I think works well. The U.S. agents then recruit Jones to uh, make his way to Egypt and recover the Ark first. We get some awesome moments between Indy and Marcus, which feels like a more casual chat between Bond and M from the old Connery Bond movies. That I have to believe that was intentional. You know, Marcus in this first film is not nearly as clueless or useless that he is in the third film. I wonder why they made that change. Indy's study is trashy and worse than mine. So like he is the real hero. That's, that's the kind of hero that I need in my life. We'll also get a lot of setup for Marion with some talk about her father, Indy's former mentor who we've never actually seen in either of the movies or even the young Indy series. Apparently, the show was canceled before they got around to introducing either Belloc or Abner Ravenwood on the series. So there's been some rumors uh, that the potential Disney Plus series could be about that. For more on the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, check out my bonus episode on our Patreon. Link in the show notes. Well, Indy's on the plane, and this is our very first Indy travel montage. I love the style of this scene where Indy's boarding this Pan Am flight, Indy's gray suit here feels like he stole it right off of Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca. Man, these matte paintings still look great. Hey, so one of those things this movie does that is one of the many favorites of all time. I love the montages, travel montages with the map overlay and the red line connecting you to points. And we get that epic montage with the map. It's, it's so iconic. It's so dumb, but I absolutely love it. Like, in cartoon, in film, you know, even in black and white, they did this. And it's just so good. Anyway, uh, I'm just going to talk about my favorite scene. So we fly off to Nepal where we meet Marion Ravenwood. So you can't go wrong with Karen Allen. The bar scene where we meet Marion. Karen Allen was also fantastic casting as Marion Ravenwood. Over in Nepal, we meet Marion, who's uh, involved in a drinking competition. So now we're in a bar. I think one of my favorite things about this movie is uh, the female lead. Uh, Marion? Marion? I didn't rewatch it recently. I don't remember. Oh, no. Marion Ravenwood, who immediately drinks a big guy under the table. Uh, but she's she's a great character. Uh, the actress is a lot of fun. I've seen her in a few things that I really like. She wasn't the typical damsel in distress, even though she is seemingly that throughout a good portion of the film. Of all the things I didn't love about Crystal Skull, bringing her back was probably the best decision that movie made. She was feisty and independent and could easily hold her own had they allowed her to. Remember, this was still at a point in time where women were still props for the male hero to rescue. 
good old-fashioned drinking contest. If this movie was made today, Marion would have been kicking asses throughout, not needing Indy's help for any kind of rescue. Because it's important to make your leading ladies look like badasses. She's my hero in this movie. An equal, not a damsel. But in this movie, her entrance being a bartender who can just drink everybody under the table is fantastic. Which is foreshadowing to a scene later on. Weird thing, uh, why are there a ton of white people in Nepal? Like, a lot. Uh, I'm guessing casting really wasn't like, hey, let's get some brown people from the area. I think there are about a dozen empty shot glasses in front of each of them. And what do they have on the table? Like a dozen shots each, maybe like 14. You can tell how backwoods an area is if this is where they get their entertainment. I have no idea how Marion stands up after she wins this. She ends up beating a guy twice her size and somehow doesn't die of alcohol poisoning? Maybe she was cheating? She seems very not drunk. Despite the, what was it, like 14, 18 different shot glasses they each had in front of them? Or hey, maybe she really is that tough. And this moment where Marion reunites with Indy is shot extremely well with the silhouette of Indy appearing before we see him. And now that is an entrance. I love the lighting and cinematography in this movie. Okay, so an important thing when creating any character, it doesn't matter if they're alive or a Pokemon, but anyone will tell you silhouette is the most important. I don't know much about the kind of serialized adventures or whatever that it's aping. In this bar scene, this is the second time we see Indy. And in the middle, we got Dr. Jones, you know, the professor. Um, so the first time you see Indy, there's all these like crazy shots that are kind of hiding who he is um, and building it up. And then the second time we see Indy as Indy, it's this silhouette cast upon the wall. And like we, we get a double intro in the same movie. It's great. I really like it. This is so good. This is so well shot. It's it's the same vibes. You can see them doing it in like the TOS 60s era classic Star Trek where they just will have someone's face, just their eyes lit. And I think that's, I think that's, I think that's pretty cool. Even Indy's shadow is hot. Oh, God damn. It's a great moment and I love the amount of character building the scene does for both of them. Indy shows up and uh, then we find out that she's pissed off at him because they used to be in a relationship, which is problematic. However, unfortunately, the scene also didn't age super well because of the way it hints at a um, <clears throat> relationship uh, between the two when she was um, a little too young, let's say. That's weird. And while we're here, let's go ahead and talk about the implications that Indy had relations with an underage girl because someone in this lot is going to bring it up besides me. There's a whole other side of this behind the scenes that one of us will be going into, I'm sure, about why it could have been far more problematic than it is in this film. Uh, she was playing early 20s in the movie, I'm going to guess, but she was 30 at the time of screen. Harrison Ford was 38. So let's, let's just back it off to when she was 16, as opposed to the time when she was hooking up with Indy. He would have been 24, though the official documentation for the movie says he was 27. Big yikes in this movie, of course, is that Indiana Jones slept with a 15-year-old girl when he was 27. Still gross. Ooh, uh, ew. <laughs> Ooh, no. <laughs> uh, I expect a comment from Troy on that one. That's weird. Now, I don't know if maybe they got some of their math here wrong, but Indy was born in 1899, according to the Ungindy Chronicles, which would make him 37 at this point. Um, 
Dun, 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 dun. No, bad. That's bad, Indiana Jones. Marion, on the other hand, is about 25 years old at this point. So there's about a 10-year age gap between the two, which isn't necessarily a problem. The problem is that they haven't seen each other in nearly a decade and had a prior fling. It's f***ed up in the context of the movie as well, because she is rightfully angry about that. And they first met in, um, checking my notes, 1925. So, um, yeah, she was underage, my dude. Indiana Jones, I always knew someday you'd come walking back through my door. And then she just bitch slaps him into last year. Anywho, she punches him because he probably deserves it. Marion might say she hates him, but her body language clearly says otherwise. And says, I learned to hate you in the last 10 years. I never meant to hurt you. He responds. She says, I was a child. I was in love. I was a child. She is correct. And he does not give a shit. It was wrong and you knew it. And his response to this is, you knew what you were doing. And that's that's gross and weird. Yikes. That's gross and weird. I honestly think that the line is being misconstrued. I honestly think this could easily be written off as a goof and could totally be retconned away because if she was just a couple years older, it wouldn't be nearly as problematic. Now, granted, there is a 10-year age difference between the two actors. If we're going off of that, then perhaps she was 18 and he was 28. They had a fling, he moved on, and that's that. For her to say, I was just a child, doesn't necessarily mean just that. She could have been talking about it from a mental capacity. Still young and naive. And, you know, look, I mean, someone might try and say, like, eh, you know, it was a different era. It was the 30s. But, man, oh, man, you don't want to go down that road. <laughs> but then again, 13 to 14-year-old girls used to be arranged into marriages at this time as well. So, what do I know? That is, that's not a good road to go down. It's just, it's just wrong. <laughs> no matter what era you're living in. For you as a 27-year-old man to be sleeping with a 15-year-old girl, it's wrong. All I'm saying is I don't think Indiana Jones is a pedophile, okay? But as it stands, it's not a great look for our hero. Sorry. Not sorry. Seriously, though, with how often George Lucas likes to go back and fix things in his movies, why hasn't this moment been revisited? I did look online and I see that they've retconned it to be that perhaps Marion was 16 or at best 17, which is like, okay, that's still bad. Like the scene with Greedo in A New Hope was fine as it was. I don't know why he felt the need to mess with that 65 times, but this scene, perfect as is, okay. Oh my God, she lights a cigarette? She could probably breathe fire about now after all those shots. Despite the somewhat creepy backstory between the two, I really do like Marion as a character. She's easily the most well-rounded indie love interest in the series, and just a great character on her own. You know, whatever. We don't need to. We don't need to have this be the entirety of my 15-minute submission. Okay. Okay. Moving on. Can we all admit that Indy is like kind of a bad guy? Moving on. Indy is here to see Marion because he needs a relic that her dad has, but unfortunately, her dad. Well, he's dead, so he's not going to be giving giving over the uh, the emblem, the relic, the medallion. Oh, yeah, that's the thing. 
And then we get this great scene where the creepiest Nazi goon in cinema history shows up at the bar with a group of random hitmen. Well, she tells Indy to come back tomorrow. Enter the Nazis. There they are. Oh my god, this Nazi leader is eerie as f***. This is our first look at Major Arnold Tote, the sadistic Gestapo agent. The creepy laughter and the hideous smile. Ron Lacey has taught exudes a slimy creepiness while channeling Peter Lorre. He's a, he's a pretty twisted guy. Just, <laughs> You know who Peter Lorre is? He talks like this. Ooh. He's extremely believable as some Nazi stooge and nails his performance here. Unfortunately, though, I couldn't tell you another film I've seen him in. If I had, I wouldn't recognize him. I love the action in the movie. All of the action is very light. There's there's something funny or goofy or silly happening in like all of the action sequences, as far as my memory. I love that top-down camera angle through the rafters when they grab Marion. It kind of makes you feel like a fly on the wall. I really like that. Makes it more immersive. So the main bad guy, like Henchman, already looked like he had a melted face. Oh, and the creepy, up-close, sweaty-faced little man. Indy shows up, bringing his whip to a gunfight. Indy and his whip to the rescue. Oh, love a good time to whip and immediately proceeds to set the whole place on fire by accident, I think. And then that leads into the tragedy of her bar getting burned down. Well, the Nazis plan to uh, torture Marion until she uh, gives him the relic, and then Indy shows up and gets in a scuffle, and then the whole bar is set ablaze. They must have hired all of the uh, Stormtrooper suit actors for this bar scene because they can't hit shit, and they're like five feet away from him. Marion drinking from the barrel that had been shot, who had already had 10 shots of booze by that point, and she's still chugging away, so, yeah. I love that Marion has time for a quick sip of courage out of the uh, the wine barrel that gets shot. That's awesome. Maybe it's whiskey. I don't know. She's my hero in this movie. Now, to add to uh, the chick's drinking capabilities she drinks the liquor from the bottle and then whacks a guy on the head she's got to be ridiculously flammable by now and she probably should not be holding that burning log and i was like totally expecting her to like shoot flames out or something but no she just drinks it and then uses the bottle as a weapon not the liquor as a weapon but power to her. She smashes that dude over the head with it and still fulfilled her bartender duties and got Indy that whiskey. And this is the scene that I remember most from when I was a kid is this bar absolutely being destroyed on fire. The way they show the shadows of the characters in this scene instead of the actual characters is really neat. I don't know that I've seen this kind of angle used much and I really like it. It just, it adds a different layer of feeling onto it. Like, I don't need to see people being shot in the face. Watching the drama of a shadow disappearing or falling off to the side. Okay, I'd like to iterate the part where, for me, this was a children's movie. I watched this as a child. So for me, this is a children's movie. It's fun. It's exciting. Stuff's happening. You know, there's the wax stuff at the very end, which is just silly. But Indy just headshotted a dude. And it's crazy that they just show that again we had the spike dude in the beginning and now a guy got headshotted i completely forgot there was this type of violence in the film it's actually it's it's really fun i really enjoyed that just keep in mind um 
a lot of people just died in this bar. And this is a children's movie. The Nazi dude reaches for the burning medallion and scars his hand. Okay, so I half expected the German guy to be able to just grab the heated gold like some kind of freak, or, you know, maybe like replace his glove with something, anything, in this entire bar. Nope, he's just a dumb German. Old mate got his hand burned, because I suppose he forgot that fire means hot. Which is pretty great. Tote attempts to pick up the medallion, which has been sitting in fire, and burns its image on its hand. I guess that's one way to, uh, to take it with you. And this creepy looking dude standing in the smoke and picking up uh, the, the medallion. That image is just burned into my head. But man, I love the cartoon style run out the window into the snow bit from him. That was absolute fucking gold. Almost as much as the images from the final finale scene with the Nazis getting their faces melted off. That's what you get. Indy promised Marion $5,000. In 1936, that was $109,360.87. Holy shit. Andy and Marion escape with the medallion, join forces, and fly off to meet up with Sala in Cairo. Jones and Marion then are able to take the, uh, the medallion and escape. The original script is so wildly different. One thing is that uh, Lawrence Kasdan's original script was even more like huge and epic and on even more locations. For example... There was an entire section in China that got completely cut from the movie because in the original story, uh, the headpiece to the staff of Ra was actually in two pieces and he needed to go get both pieces. One was from Marion. The other was from some uh, Chinese warlord or something like that. So he had to go to China and steal this thing back. During that adventure, he ended up uh, being shot at by gangsters and he had to cut down uh, this steel gong in this club that he was in and then use it as a shield rolling all the way out the window so he could jump out the window into a car in order to make his escape. Which, of course, they recycled in Temple of Doom. Oh, here's our second indie travel montage. Now we're heading to Cairo. John Reese davies is another great addition as Sala. Now, I love Sala. Played here by John Reese davies a.k.a. Gimli from Lord of the Rings. Oh, we meet uh, Indy's friend, Gimli. I mean, Sala. Uh, Sala is great, but Sala's monkey is is the real MVP. Little, little monkey guy. I only just realized that John Reese davies is in this. How cool. I love that guy. He's pretty tall for a dwarf. He's a trusted ally for Indy that they could have easily written to eventually betray him in exchange for whatever arbitrary want or need he had. But he is loyal to the end, and I appreciate the hell out of that. Unlike Alfred Molina, who betrays Indy after, well, not really doing much of anything, but screaming like a little bitch. And some have pointed out over the years that he's a Welsh actor, so it's a bit controversial to, um, you know, that he's uh, betraying a Middle Eastern man. But I would counter with the fact that Egypt, especially at this point in history, was actually quite a melting pot of different cultures, especially following World War I uh, with the influx of British troops. So I think it's just as likely that one of his parents uh, was of British descent. And then, you know, maybe he was raised in that culture, so retained the accent. Of all the potentially problematic things in the series, I honestly don't think that Sala is really that egregious. I think another thing that'd be interesting is that the original characterization of Sala was quite different. Uh, and that's another place where the casting, the original, and this is another one where TV took away Spielberg's original casting choice. And that was Danny DeVito was going to play Sala. 
about as different an actor as you can get from John Reese davies as you can imagine. And weirdly enough, even Danny DeVito only half matched the description. Because in the script, he was supposed to be this five foot two skinny little Egyptian guy with a big family. And instead, they cast this massive, you know, British, South African-born John Reese davies with his, you know, basso profundo voice. Now, if, if this movie was made today, you know, they would probably err on the side of caution and obviously, you know, look into casting someone that was actually from Egypt because, you know, let's all face it, movies from the 80s weren't exactly as um, diverse as they could have been and representation is important. That said, uh, John Reese davies is a pretty amazing actor and I think he kind of kills it in this role. So yeah, I, you know. I'm not, I'm not going to um, die on this hill or anything, but it's honestly, I think, pretty low on the list of potential problems with the series. Speaking about that real quick, there is a moment in this movie where he sings a British Targ, which I assume might be a hint that he's, you know, at least partially English. But again, I digress. Anywho. Sala reveals that Belloc is there assisting the Nazis who have, um, they fashioned an incomplete replica medallion from the burns on Tote's hand, and they're currently looking for the Well of Souls. Yo, Indy is friends with the same dude who's friends with Bond. He's got great connections. We've also got another Bond connection because Sala also appeared in The Living Daylights, one of the two Timothy Dalton Bond movies from the 80s. Wouldn't that be kind of a weird like crossover if John Reese davies character in Bond was the same one from Raiders of the Lost Ark? Like just different code names? I think that'd be a pretty cool crossover. Well, walking around the city, Indy and Marion are, uh, we, we meet the little monkey, little, little monkey guy who turns out to be a Nazi informant. The monkey hails Hitler. This view is not shared by all monkeys. What the f***? can't even trust a not of course you can't trust a nazi well you can't trust a monkey we got fucking monkey nazis god damn now the sequence where marion is captured and india is in pursuit is pretty great the ambush in cairo is almost slapstick indian marion are attacked by hired goons the action sequence in the market square is stooge level it ain't all amazing one of my all-time favorite scenes that made me laugh so hard during my first proper rewatch. And then Indy ends up having a huge big fight with a sword guy, or was about to. The shooting of the giant swords. And just takes out his gun and shoots him instead. And there's that amazing scene where Indy faces off against a dude with a sword, and Indy just shrugs, pulls out his pistol, and shoots him point blank. While it wasn't initially written that way, it works so much better overall. It's just pure gold, but the story behind it is even better. Now, if memory serves me, this scene was improvised because it was supposed to be a big fight between Indy with his whip and this guy with a sword. I'm 90% sure everyone will talk about, like, Indy shooting the guy because Harrison Ford had dysentery. But due to dysentery, he couldn't be... Harrison Ford could not be away from a bathroom for that long, so he just... Needed to go, pulled out his gun, shot the guy, and <laughs> just walked away. So a lot of people have heard this story about where the funny gag of the huge swordsman swinging his scimitar around and then suddenly he just shoots him dead. Originally that was supposed to be an elaborate fight scene. And in fact, you can see some footage of Harrison Ford like taking his bullwhip to keep the swordsman at bay and it was going to be the beginning of this thing. I can understand the actor feeling like he was robbed of his big moment that he trained for, but... It was the logical choice in that moment. 
but they were filming in Tunisia. It was 130 degrees, and they were and eating the local food had given everybody dysentery. Apparently, the whole crew got sick. Harrison Ford felt like garbage after a dozen takes. There was supposed to be some big, long, elaborate, choreographed fight, but Ford asked Spielberg if he could improvise the scene. I think that's how it happened. Eric, Chris, whoever else is here. And was the dude with the big sword in blackface? Is this... Is this all right? Someone check, check notes. Spielberg only ate food out of cans from London because he couldn't afford. He's like, I'm the director of this film. If I get sick, the whole production shuts down. So he didn't get the dysentery, but Harrison Ford was. And that's when he's like, couldn't, I have a gun. Why can't I just shoot this guy? Why wouldn't you just shoot this guy if the opportunity was there? And then it ended up being one of the most iconic movie moments ever. And it has been since referenced many times. I'm so glad Harrison Ford convinced him to do it this way. And honestly, it's a character-defining moment. Hooray for food poisoning? You, you geeks. You f***ing indie geeks. Let me know if I'm correct. Uh, but the thing, another one, though, he wasn't the only one. Uh, there was a deleted scene where Sala... Uh, this is the part where India's down in the map room trying to figure out where they're going to dig. And Sala is up top and the Germans start hassling him because he's a local Egyptian and they can boss him around. Well, they cut out some scenes and there's this one point where the German gets pissed at Sala and draws a gun on him. And when they were shooting this scene, and John Rhys-Davies is sick, it's hot. And Steven Spielberg's like, John, can you, you're, you're, you're really tall, can you stoop down a little bit so I can get your eye line on camera? So John Rhys-Davies squats down and then himself in front of 200 people. And he said, and I didn't even care. That's how sick he was. He wanted to die. Filming in Tunisia was the most miserable experience for pretty much everybody involved. You can't do this to me, I'm an American, is certainly a sentiment a lot of people have to this day. Another shout out for me to all the extras in this movie. Man, oh man, do they cr help create a really believable atmosphere. I have no idea if this is accurate or not. This may come as a surprise. I've never been to Cairo in the 30s, but they make it feel so alive with all of the people there. The city feels believable. Uh, the dig site with all the workers, the, the, the singing various family the the markets it just true movie magic there you know that's a lot of times in movies you can kind of feel like it's a bunch of people milling around for whatever 25 bucks a day to fill out the background and i'm i don't know i'm just guessing that this is all a bunch of local people that were hired to do it and i think they did a great job and i think it was a good choice to do that marion jumped into a, a basket but was discovered and uh, she's being carried off by the goons it's mostly played for laughs, but it ends on a dramatic note where Indy thinks that she died in an explosion. While Indy is pursuing, it looks like the the truck that the, her basket is put in explodes and that she is killed. Cut to Indy drinking with a monkey. I like the uh, monkey. Oh, and the monkey was voiced by uh, Frank Welker. Because, kids, everything in the 80s and 90s was Frank Welker, even into the 2000s. Now most animals are voiced by Alan Tudyk. Nothing wrong with that. I love Alan Tudyk. It's just a new generation of animal noises coming from voice actors. Uh, Sala is great, but Sala's monkey is is the real MVP. Indy is then distraught and just sits down in a bar and starts drinking where the Nazis go and find him and bring him to Belloc. So we have this whole goofy-ass scene and Indy thinks he killed Marion. And then it's like so dramatic. This is, it's so dumb. 
it really is like what lightly established drama to have such a grand impact. Belloc shows up to monologue at Indy about how they're equals. I'm uncomfortable with how Belloc is eyeing Indy in the lounge. It's disturbing. The Ark is a transmitter to God, Belloc professes. Belloc believes that the Ark is a way to speak to God. Indy just responds, You want to talk to God? Let's go see him together. Such a badass line. Indy is so distraught that he goes to kill Belloc and finds out that there's Nazis in the entire bar. And then Indy is saved by Sala's 36 kids. But Indy is saved by Gimli's kids. I mean, Sala's kids. Can you imagine John Reese davies telling his kids, now wait until they pull the guns before you go save Uncle Indy. We see the monkey handler poison the dates and learn all the details about the staff. I love like the the perfect, you know, comedic timing of John Reese Davis describing the headpiece. And then when we see the imprint in the German's hand, it's just it's perfect. You already know what you're looking at. Uh this is the great moment where the monkey steals the date. The monkey is still following Indy around because, well, Indy is not aware that he's a Nazi spy. And he eats it, and then he dies. Bad dates. Nazi monkey. And then Sala reaches out and grabs a date. Yo, Ghibli got some quick hands, man. Indy was about to do himself in with that poison. Sala and Indy believe that Belloc's staff is too long, so they are digging in the wrong place. The monkey ends up eating a date and dies before Indy can eat any of the food. And looks at the monkey and goes, bad date. Best quotes or one-liners or anything honestly probably the whole film i think the writing is really fun in this almost every scene in this movie has something that's quotable there's some stuff that it's like either the line was written well or it's just so absurd that it's great poor monkey thanks there you fucking nazi monkey r.i.p and say rest in peace to the monkey but uh he's a fascist it's great yeah i can't say that i have any one one thing it's just it's fun to listen to just just what a what a sign of a classic you gotta love how every other scene a character is warning indy to not disturb the arc but he just barrels on through anyway i could nitpick this movie to death uh but clearly they don't give a shit so that's fine with me Indy is able to get down into the map room with the correct size staff and height and learns the actual site that they need to dig for the Ark of the Covenant. Long story short, Indy uses the medallion and the staff, with the help of Sala, to find the real location of the Ark, hidden in the ancient Egyptian ruins. This is adventure fantasy. It's not all realistic. Uh, Fun is going to be more important than historical accuracy. Historical references... I don't know. History, Eric, that's your job. Just tell, lay some history on them. So as we mentioned before, this movie takes place in 1936. And I have only now realized that this movie was set in 1936. For a little context on world events at the time, Hitler and the Nazi party first rose to power in Germany in 1933. But this was a full three years before the outbreak of World War II in 1939, when the Germans invaded Poland. And of course, the Americans didn't even join the war until the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. Huh. Well, that makes sense, I guess, with the Nazis and all. I guess I just always sort of forgot that the start of the movie. It's crazy how many Nazi references are in this. I mean, specifically because Spielberg's Jewish, but I mean, because it takes place in 1936, the world's still open to travel. There's no true war going on, just a bunch of crap. Uh, I mean, but there's palatable tension in the air. 
Still, it's a super clever touch to use the Nazis as the villains in this one because they were definitely around at this point and were actively searching for occult items because Hitler was obsessed with the supernatural. What threw me off was the amount of Nazis in Egypt during the 1930s, and I had to look this up because I thought it was like a British stronghold culturally. I mean, I've been there. I've seen a lot of British shit. Hell, the, the main museum is called the British Museum, although they finally moved it. It's now a Egyptian museum. Um, good for them. Uh, but it turns out that Germans were super into Egyptology. Uh, they had their own university in Cairo and everything. It was just very interesting. Uh, also, I had to look up uh, alcohol because I know at the time, like, oh, you know, they're still Muslim country, but yeah, they're... Um, it just that they had alcohol there. They've always made beer, but that they had hard liquor was kind of like a thing held over from the Roaring Twenties. Also, I really appreciate Spielberg using the Nazis as the villains for this particular story for three reasons. One, Nazis make great bad guys because Nazis. Two, we can never really get enough uh, punching Nazis in media, in my opinion, especially today with the rise of even dumber wannabe fascists. And three, as someone of Hebrew lineage, I cannot stress this enough, Nazis. While Indy is making his way through the uh, the Nazi encampment, he finds out that Marion is still alive. Indy fails to save Marion again because, of course. So, like, pro tip to all you guys out there: aggressively grab the girl, then remove your mask. But he can't free her because, well, then naturally the Nazis would begin <laughs> begin looking for him. So he leaves her there, which pisses her off. Like super smooth. Show her you love her by putting a gag in her mouth and then kiss her on the forehead and leave her for dead. It's really not helping their relationship. It's a very unhealthy relationship, actually. They are going to need counseling after this. A guy, I love an adventurer who does his own research. Any scenes of Indy looking at his little... Moleskin notebook, scribbling away, making notes, making calculations, biting on a pencil. Oh, yes, please. More of that. More of that. Indy goes, grabs a team, and they begin to start digging, but apparently the Nazis aren't noticing what they're doing at all. They're just off doing their own thing. We get another awesome silhouette shot of Indy standing over the dig site. So one of the other many things that I love from this era, the like oncoming storm effects you know the storm effects in the background in the sky uh, yeah they're, they're a little dated it's to this day these are still my favorite effects where it's like clearly it's a green screen the characters are on one end and then there's a storm on the other they're not awful uh, you you can tell it from you know 40-ish years ago but the, the settings always look so good. I feel like that was something that was pretty much always done well, is you have dramatic lighting on the characters, and even though, like, the light in the front and the dark in the back don't, I guess, like, in reality line up, like, there's something about it that it has so much more impact than anything I have ever seen CG do. There's a creepy scene between Marion and Belloc. Meanwhile, Belloc brings food to Marion to try and get her help before they um, turn to torturing her. He's also into Marion. Uh, so even though she's probably 20 years as junior in this movie. All right. So Marion drinking with Belloc. Uh, this is fun because of how they chose to establish her ability to handle liquor earlier. Like, you know, she can handle her liquor. She knows she can handle her liquor, but Belloc doesn't because he hasn't seen this movie yet. I guess it must be an archaeologist thing. You know, you look for old things at the same time you're trying to bed younger things. Marion grabs a... a is it a butter knife? She grabs a knife and she's about to escape from Belloc, but she is stopped by Major Arnold Tote, who has his own coat hanger. Oh man, that's such, so convenient to have a coat hanger. 
Indy's crew finally uncover the sanctum and the floor is covered in snakes. Ah, oh, Chekhov's gun! Oh, it's paid off! Yeah! But my favorite little, little Easter egg is C-3PO and R2-D2 inside of the Well of Souls when Indy and Sala are getting the Ark. All right! I find a, like, light humor in the Ark of the Covenant being placed within another Ark. It's like, Yzma's put that box in a bigger box, then mail it to myself. You know, Indy and Sala are strong as to move these giant stone slabs by themselves. While Indy and Gimli are finding the Ark, Belloc finally notices Indy's team digging off in the uh, in the distance. The Nazis uh, are able to go take the Ark and drop Marion down into the tomb with Indy and seal them inside. And then after discovering the Ark, Indy is left for dead along with Marion inside a tomb full of snakes. The snake scene is horrid. When they're actually in the Well of the Souls, where the Ark is, and of course that's where Indiana Jones has to deal with his biggest fear, snakes. Now, one trait of Indiana Jones that I can relate to is his fear of snakes. I am not a person who's very afraid of snakes, but my mom is very afraid of snakes, and every time I watch Raiders of the Lost Ark and they're just stuck in a hole full of snakes, I feel like I can understand where she's coming from, because that seems terrible. The scene in the Tomb of the Ark is not my favorite scene at all. This was shot in Elstree Studios in London. There were 2,000 snakes originally ordered for this room, and they, they get them all over the place. A lot of snakes, but not nearly enough for Steven Spielberg, because he was like, well, if you a bunch of snakes together, we can get them for the close shots, but the moment you get wide shots, you can just see all these empty areas where anybody could just walk around the snakes. It doesn't look that scary. So he's like, guys, I need more snakes. And there's one point where he turns around and he's like, I think we need about 7,000 more snakes. And then all of his production crew are like, yeah, yeah, sure, Steven, we're going to go do that. And they had to figure out, and they emptied out every, probably every pet store in the UK and everywhere they could get somebody to sell them a snake. So they could just fill this room up to what was ultimately around 10,000 snakes. I think I would have a full-blown panic attack where I'm in that situation. I have no idea what would snap me out of it either. All I would know is that I'm surrounded by snakes and one of them is going to bite me, no matter what I do, and I'll die right here in this tomb. Now, how did all those snakes survive for thousands of years in there? No idea, but it doesn't matter. Just roll with it. Trust me. Indy is able to spray the snakes with gas and lights them on fire. Oh! Seriously, f*** them snakes. PETA must be pissed! Steve Irwin would not approve of Indy's snake removal methods. Even if you can see the glass between Indy and the snakes. Like, you can tell that Harrison Ford, he was never running the snakes, so there's glass between them. But it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Also in the Well of Souls, there's a whole wall where snakes are coming out in the room, but when they tear that wall down with the giant statue, there are no snakes there. Just like 40 mummies and an outlet to the outside. You didn't think someone would like, you know, walk around the outside of that little mountain where they were digging, maybe check to see if they've already kind of dug some of this stuff up or something was exposed. It would have been a hell of a lot easier to go to the sideways and walk right out versus down a rope. I think it's funny how destructive Indiana is as a quote-unquote archaeologist. <laughs> when when he finds the Well of Souls, the first thing he does is spray gasoline everywhere and lights fires because he's a giant baby afraid of snakes. When him and Sala uh, get to the Ark, they just toss aside the giant covering on it. They escape the tomb by absolutely demolishing a thousand years of history. They're able to escape when Indy knocks a giant statue of, is that Ra? Is, is that Anubis? I don't know. I need to go watch The Mummy, apparently, to learn all this. 
knocks a giant statue through a wall, dozens of ancient artifacts, bulldozing through an entire wall of hieroglyphics, etc. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Marion finds herself in, inside a tomb with a bunch of bodies? The brief horror moment right there. Hey, look, I know he has to escape from that room, but he does it by smashing <laughs> a wall of hieroglyphics with a giant, I'm assuming to be priceless statue. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Way to go, Indiana! And conveniently, they bust out of the tomb right next to the next action set piece. On what has been my like 23 watched, I noticed all of the big set pieces were actually kind of standalone, almost in studios or, or warehouses. Uh, you start to notice that each area India's in is self-contained, with the exception of Salas House, which is in the middle of, uh, not Cairo, he wasn't in Cairo specifically, but somewhere near there, and then the car chase. Uh, it's probably a creative way to save budget by Spielberg, but when you think about it, not too many wide open or long shots, even in the plaza with like the, the gun versus the sword. Like that was kind of like a self-contained lot. I know they did film in Tunisia, but still. Canyons at the end, uh, also self-contained by themselves, but they had definitely had to film on site. But every other piece is contained in one area. The big battle of the airplane, that's basically a small depression, bunch of dunes around there, so you can't see the rest of the camp. U-boat pen, the face-off in the cafe, the cave in the beginning, the classroom, the tent. There are a lot of close-up and medium shots uh, and controllable sets, which is funny because, I mean, Spielberg at this point was fine, comfortable you know, shooting outdoors. It was just interesting how they chose to set this movie's sets up. Now, up until now, this one has been kind of a slow burn by modern sensibilities. Uh, that is until we get to the scene with the plane. Sala lets Indy know that the Nazis are going to fly the plane to Berlin. So Indy must stop the plane. Gets in a fight with the big muscly man. This whole action scene is fantastic. The classic fight with the, with the giant strongman Nazi. I'll say it. The boxer was done dirty. He was playing fair and square, and Indy was a jerk. Like, come on, Indy, fight fair. The choreography is flawless, and yes, it's all practical effects. Marion gets locked in the cockpit. She fires all the guns. Actually, she's quite useful. She's taking out a lot of Nazis. Indy was Antifa before it was cool. That's pretty light, <laughs> right up until it is brutally not. Seriously, it's one of the best action scenes in all of movies. Until it is, until it is very much not light. This whole fight between Indy and the big buff dude is brilliant. The big German, uh, the one Indy fights at the plane, was actually in every Indiana Jones movie except for Crystal Skull, because he passed in 2004. Uh, he was two roles in this movie. He was one of the Sherpas in Nepal, and he was the big German guy. And he's in the next movie, two movies as well. I will point him out. Indiana Jones punches some Nazis. I think punching Nazis is great. That's always good. And again, I think this helps kind of set the tone. India's getting his ass handed to him. You know, punching sound effects from the 80s are amazing. They just overwhelming thwap as you hit somebody. Indy keeps punching the guy, but takes one hit and gets knocked on his ass. Because the end of the movie goes in a very, very different direction where it is suddenly just horror and and not at all fun and light and, and i th i think that's on purpose and i think that goofiness earlier makes that uh hit a bit harder and again he kind of wins by looking out when the dude gets chopped up by the propeller in one of the most gruesome deaths in the franchise the big guy the indies fighting gets turned into shish kebab what kind of cargo space did that weird plane have i mean 
It didn't look like it lifts a lot. Where was the runway? I mean, it just, that was a weird plane situation. I realized it was based on something that was already drawn out, but it was just interesting. Indy manages to rescue Marion in the nick of time before the plane blows up in a brilliant explosion. Everything begins to explode because, well, Hollywood. And I just realized that she was running through that hot sand barefoot. Ouch. I'd be worried about shrapnel. Oh, and it's worth pointing out that uh, they actually had an Indiana Jones stunt spectacular at Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Uh, it was part of what used to be the MGM Studios Park, if I'm not mistaken, which I think was later renamed Hollywood Studios and was recently revamped into Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. But the whole show was a recreation of this scene from Raiders, complete with real-life pyrotechnics. It was awesome. Anyway, Indy reunites with Sala and then realizes that the Nazis are getting away with the Ark, and Indy says he's going to go after it. Sala asks, how? Indy responds, I don't know, I'm making this up as I go. And that right there tells you everything you need to know about him. The Ark is then loaded on a truck for Cairo, and Indy takes off uh, after the truck on horseback. It's awesome. At one point, the Germans were taking the Ark, and suddenly the workers started rioting. Yo, you were just helping them dig that shit out. What did you think was going on? He jumps onto the truck. We have a nice little fight scene. And that leads to another one of the greatest action scenes in film history. The truck sequence. The best action sequence for me was most likely the car chase. Okay, so this wacky race scene, right? For me, the best sequence in this movie is when Indy chases after the arc in the truck through the desert. Seriously, guys, this is the grittiest, most badass fight sequence ever filmed. And again, it's all practical. In a time before CGI, stuntmen did some crazy stuff, and the stunts in that sequence thrill me every single time. The truck fight chase scene is quite entertaining. Indy climbing under that truck is intense. Knowing someone is actually doing that just blows my mind. So practical that Harrison Ford almost died. Again. Dude's a legend. They're constantly shown in the thickest parts of the jungle or the middle of the desert until Indy turns into someone then they're like magically cliffside for just that second. The film is obviously chock full of amazing scenes and stunts but this sequence takes the cake for me and it's rare when a film can elicit the same response upon ever viewing except for bad films. They always make me turn them off in disgust. Shameful. Seriously they really dragged him behind that truck. I... I do enjoy it. I just love how determined Indy is the whole time, just barreling through every obstacle that comes his way, punching and killing his way through Nazis every step of the way. Indiana Jones punches some Nazis. And I cannot stress this enough, but Nazis. Ah, oh, there's a Wilhelm scream. Good job. Speaking of which, I'm pretty sure they passed the same cliff twice, but in opposite directions. Dude gets shot point blank in the shoulder at one point and shrugs it off like it was a scratch. Tis a flesh wound. Again, is it realistic? Not really, but the practical effects sell it, and I'm totally willing to suspend any and all of my disbeliefs, and I'm just willing to go along for that ride. This is a popcorn movie at its finest. Oh man, Indy just took out a primitive culvert system for the natives. What a dick. And the longer the chase goes on, the more and more pissed he gets. And then there's the scene where India, Indy's on the front of, like, the large truck. And the Germans in the front are like, speed up, speed up. And it's like, bitch, you got brakes. If you really want to solve this problem, you'd slam them. 
He's just f***ing shucking these dudes off cliffs, blowing shit up, and that last guy, the one who threw him through the window after repeatedly punching him in the bullet wound, finally gets his comeuppance as Indy climbs his way back under the truck, manages to get back in, shoves the guy's head into the dashboard three times before punching him, throwing his ass to the windshield, and then running him the f*** over. Hell yeah. Indy escapes with the truck, they arrive in Cairo, and they, they are able to hide the truck quite conveniently. Uh, especially because at the end, it's almost like a James Bond uh, reference where he drives into like the, the bazaar and they hide him away. And why the hell is there a bat cave in this market? Sala got word to them <laughs> that they needed a place to hide a big truck. This this might be the most ridiculous of the scenes in the entire movie. Because like, where, where, why is this here? Like, is this... Is this Batman's, like, I don't know, summertime or wintertime vacation area? Like, this is so goofy. But it is relevant to Batman in the 1930s, now that I think about it. That's very convenient. Indian Marion are now along with the Ark on a boat for America. I love Captain Katanga. Uh, if we have a spinoff movie that's just Captain Katanga, Pirate of the High Seas, I would watch the sh out of that. Indy and Marion get a little cozy, about some time for maybe some snuggling, and Indy falls asleep. I, I mean, come on. I do like that there's a toll on his body. We get to see the aftermath, and it leads to a pretty romantic scene between him and Marion. Like the tender moment between Indy and Marion on the pirate ship, it's sweet and cute. Again, if you can forget the whole cringy backstory between the two. Uh, just ignore, just ignore that other part about their history. It'll help immensely with the enjoyment it was very but still fun which ends with um indy falling asleep look i have been tired in situations like that and i i have not fallen asleep been there buddy been there granted i wasn't fighting nazis in the 30s but i digress indiana jones punches some nazis that's always good it's on the ship where we see that thing I mentioned earlier, the first indication that there's some supernatural forces in this world, in the Indieverse, where the Ark is burning through the wood. We get that awesome shot of the crate where the swastika burns away. And going back to Doug's theory about the mystical artifacts actually being alien tech, this moment kind of supports that theory because of that weird otherworldly humming we hear during the shot. I know when I was younger, there used to be a debate among my friends about whether that was specifically God didn't like Nazis and it's like, ah, fuck the Nazis. Or if it was, this is a powerful artifact that's just hot and is burning through the crate. So, I mean, I guess whatever theory you want to go with, that's, I feel like that's an important piece of evidence one way or the other. Sounds pretty, pretty alien. Then, a German U-boat appears off the side of the ship. As the boat is on its way to America, it's stopped by a Nazi U-boat, and they find the Ark, and they fight Marion. Take them aboard the U-boat. Indy swims over to the sub and somehow manages to either get inside or hangs on for dear life the entire way. Indy ends up swimming over to the submarine and somehow sneaks aboard the U-boat? Or does he just sit on top the entire time? I mean, the U-boat is going to go faster, you know, when they're above the surface. But I, I always assume that they went underwater so they wouldn't be detected. That wouldn't work. He would drown. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Let's just roll with it. Here's our third indie travel montage to a remote island with a Nazi base. 
Indy pulls a Han Solo and disguises himself as a stormtrooper. The scene where Indy knocks out a guard and steals his uniform, which is too small. Yeah, nice, nice little touch of humor right there. So then he steals the other officer's uniform, which is more appropriately sized. Belloc wants to open the Ark and convinces the Nazis that they, they want to do this because they don't want to open it in front of Hitler. And my goodness, that would be, that would be awful if there was nothing there. Although Belloc just wants all the power to himself. Now we get a weird Nazi procession parade to carry the Ark to the middle of the island. Okay. Indy then grabs a bazooka and threatens to blow up the Ark. Well, Indy shows up with a missile launcher and threatens to blow up the Ark. Bargaining for Marion's life. It isn't until the end of the movie that he reverses that choice and is literally willing to blow the Ark to smithereens in order to get the woman he loves back that he made the correct choice. I love that after all, all of the that Indy has been through, like so many struggles, so much fighting, so many you know instances of near death, Belloc just uses Indy's interest in history as a means of coercing him to go through this bullshit plan. But Belloc calls his bluff, and Indy is captured. And we can't talk about this film without talking about the ending. Ah, man, these matte paintings still look good. Ah, I love, love matte paintings. Ultimately, Indy is captured by the Nazis. Again. All right, so we got to get to the end scene where all the Nazis get their faces melted off. Yeah, that ending, man, it just comes right out of the blue. It is unexpected. Unexpected that that's what's going to happen. Indy and Marion are tied up to witness the Nazis' triumph as they open the Ark. I've seen this movie a bunch of times. It wasn't until this time I realized that the guy opening the Ark was uh, Belloc. Why did Belloc dress up like a Jewish priest to open the Ark? I, every single time, had thought they had gotten some sort of nazi whatever ritual priest guy to do that uh furthermore why did he bring the vestments of a jewish priest uh with him to egypt on a nazi dig but this time i finally put it together like oh that's belloc like hey you know what uh we got to make sure we're dressed for the part to open this thing and the other part too was that he didn't have any res- he wasn't a man of faith he didn't believe uh, in what the Ark was or what it represented. He, it was just this, it was the next piece of treasure for him to hunt. And all it was only him changing his mind and respecting the power of God and keeping their eyes closed that saved them from, uh, you know, from what happened to everybody else. At just the right moment, Indy tells her to close her eyes. I mean, at least he remembered not to look at the face of God when Nazis opened the Ark. And and uh, Harrison Ford is yelling, close your eyes, close your eyes, don't look, close your eyes. Now, how does he know this? We don't know. It doesn't matter, though, because what follows is one of the most metal things to ever happen on the big screen. Listen, I know I was seeing this movie way too young because I know the first several times I saw this movie, I didn't see what happened in the Nazis' faces because I closed my eyes. As a kid, I was always under the assumption that this movie was R-rated. Given the somewhat graphic nature of some of the scenes, mainly the opening of the Ark of the Covenant. Indy and Marion are all tied up while Belloc and the Nazis go to open the Ark, and all they find is sand. They open they open the uh, the Ark, and it's just sand, which I think I had always believed was like it was the Ten Commandments, but they had turned to sand, but that doesn't seem plausible. It seems to just be a box of sand. Because I was scared that if I didn't close my eyes, then something terrible was going to happen to me. I love this whole sequence. And they got power, they've got uh, video cameras, they got everything set up, but then the generators overload and creepy shit starts to happen. Um, but it's not just a box of sand. It's filled with <laughs> it's filled with spirits and ghosts and monsters and 
and death and and I don't know, the wrath of God, I guess. It kind of reminds me of Ghostbusters. The effects work was unlike anything I'd ever seen and was truly my first glimpse at horrific gore. Everything about this head exploding, face melting scene, children's material. These spirits are creepy looking. The Nazi face melting, holy <laughs> That was a shock to me as a kid. Bloody melted faces? I mean, my God. All children's material. It's quite possible that my older brother instilled that in me. He might have been telling me, hey, you got to close your eyes. Otherwise, your face is going to melt off like a Nazi's. Uh, but yeah, that's that's how I know I saw this movie way too young. I'm honestly surprised that the discussion of the new rating didn't begin here. And it may have. Just keep in mind, my mom would not let me watch Dragon Ball Z. But this is children's material. We get some real Wrath of God stuff here. I mean, not to me. Like I said, I, I think it's aliens. As the Nazi goons are torched by lightning, they get their faces literally melted off. While it may feel extreme and somewhat excessive, it doesn't feel out of place. In fact, I think the film earns that moment. And Belloc's head just explodes for good measure. Belloc's head explodes like he was in the movie Scanners. Because I guess he can't handle it or something. Mind blown. Almost to showcase what tampering with the power of God can cost you. But also because the Ark of the Covenant is an ancient Jewish relic, it's such great poetic irony that it's the instrument of their own demise. It's an equally terrifying and fascinating scene. It's a bit hard to justify that as being aliens because they do look like swimming, uh, floating around ghosts. The only two people left alive, actually left there, period, are Indy and Marion because they close their eyes, therefore they are spared. But if it's God, would Indy and Marion have died if they had looked at it? Because, man, that's an interesting thought experiment right there. Uh, God's just like, you know what? I'm pissed at everyone who's taken my ark out of the out of the ground where I had it buried. So kids, remember, when the judgment of God is coming for you, just close your eyes and you'll be fine. So fuck all y'all. Doesn't matter. I love it. Just enjoy your marshmallows roasted over the Nazi corpses. Yeah. Next, we jump to the United States government meeting with Jones and telling him that they're going to confiscate the Ark and say that it's being researched. Wait, Indy and Brody and Marion are upset that the college didn't end up with the Ark. What the hell? Oh shit, is that Porkins? You know, the X-Wing pilot who dies immediately during the Death Star Trench run? Yeah, yeah, it turns out that's him. I just checked IMDb. Uh, he's playing this government stooge from the CIA or whatever, and I totally didn't recognize him at first. You wanted basically a theological nuclear bomb in your small college just hanging around. What? Like, with a plaque or something? Maybe in the commons? In a special museum? What happens when some frat decides to open it during the homecoming as a prank or something? William Hookins, that's his name. He was a British actor. He's in a ton of stuff. He also played that one guy with the gravelly noir voice in uh, Tim Burton's Batman 89. What's his face? Eckhart? Eckhart, that's it. Totally forgot to mention that connection when we covered the Batman movies back on season 8. I assure you, we have top men working on it. Who? Top men. But why, why do they need the art? Yeah, top men can take care of it all they want, buddy. You don't need it in your college. Uh, the college that doesn't have $40,000 to uh, spend on a gold idol. The movie ends with Indy complaining about American bureaucrats, 
Indy and Marion then head off to go get a drink. Marion and him go off for a drink in D.C. End of the movie, the end end of the movie, this sort of almost like stinger. It's classic. It's one of the most iconic things about the Indy franchise is the warehouse. What else is in the rest of the warehouse? I mean, we see some of that in Crystal Skull. Which, uh, thanks to Crystal Skull, we know is Warehouse 51. Unfortunately. Where there's lots of lots of other things. But that's a big-ass warehouse, and it doesn't look like it's well-organized. What a cool place this would be to visit. Maybe on purpose, actually, to hide stuff. They probably have all of my left socks there. This is another point of debate, at least among my friend group, was just with no other context at the end of Indiana Jones... Is that a warehouse filled with other spooky, weird shit that the government has gotten a hold of? Or is it meant to hide the Ark amongst like a can't find the trees for the forest kind of situation there? You know what I mean? Hide a tree in a forest. I think then Crystal Skull makes it explicit that it's like, no, nah, it's just a bunch of other weird shit that the, the government's got its hands on. Also, God apparently had a sandstorm happen for a year after the Ark was stolen back in Egypt. Covered that whole area and that's why they're digging it out. And now the government just put it in a warehouse in the desert? What makes us special? Doesn't that also count as theft? Maybe the us taking the Ark was the beginning of the end downfall for the United States, and now we have capitalism and everything's terrible. And then we get this awesome matte painting. Of, ah, I love, love matte paintings. The massive warehouse, presumably at Area 51, where the Ark is once again lost forever. The Ark is sealed away and stored in a massive government storage warehouse. Never to be seen again. Or will it? End of film. The Raiders of the Lost Ark, we got, you see, Marion and Indy survive what happened with the Ark. And then it just fades and then they're back in America and somehow they've gotten the Ark back safely on their own. What happened at the sub-base once all of the ghosts stole the bodies of the Nazis? I saw this movie in the theaters when it came out as a, a young lad. I would have been close to 10 years old, 9, 10, or 11, somewhere in that range. Uh, me and my friends saw it by ourselves. Scared the piss out of us. Holy shit. We were so fucking scared. Did Indy and Marion sneak back and call the U.S.? Did, did they take the sub for themselves? Did they find, like, a shortwave radio? Just... They were in the middle of an island where they landed on a sub. There was a whole pen built out, whole infrastructure for Germans. And then uh, bodies are taken away and suddenly they're back in the U.S. But in the original script, the Nazis all being killed by God wasn't the end of the movie. They had to literally load the Ark up and get out. So what happened was they loaded it up on a mine cart and, and rode this mine cart track down to the, the other base of the island and then Nazis started chasing their fights on the mine cart going on back to the edge, which once again got recycled for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And then this is the part that really would have screwed with people in 1981. So Indiana Jones and Marion get there to the end, but there's I, with all the fighting and stuff that's going on, there's some sort of explosion, and it causes the entrance uh, to the cave inside the island to begin to collapse. And so Marion and Indiana Jones hold each other in their arms and confess their love to each other as the rocks fall, and it fades to black and rolls the credits. And audiences would have been convinced that Indiana Jones and his girlfriend were dead. Because in 1981, nobody would have known to stick around for the end credits scene. So you have to understand what they were going for was just like the beginning of the movie is 
an homage to the serial adventure. So we don't start with the adventure of the Lost Ark. We start at the end of the adventure of the idol. So the idea was a lot of the serials would end on a cliffhanger ending. And in fact, famously, a lot of them ended looking like your hero was dead. Like there was one episode where Batman got was tied to a train with dynamite and, it was, and you see the train explode and you're like, oh, Batman's dead. And then the next week, of course, you see it from a different angle where he jumped off at the last second. So as an homage, they said they would have that look like their heroes died. And then at the very end of the credits, suddenly they're back in America and it kind of plays out the way it did at the end of the movie. It turns out they're fine and then it would have ended with the Ark going into a government warehouse, never to be seen again. Wisely, they decided to not go in that direction because nobody would have stuck around. They would have just said, oh my God, I watched all of that just to watch these people die. That's insane. I remember it was raining and we just ran home from the theater as we were running, I remember trying to comfort my friend by saying something like, someday we're going to watch a movie where they expl- uh, watch a documentary thing where they explain how they did all the effects and that'll make it better. But yeah, oh man. <laughs> it was fine again up until that that end, that the big whammy there with the face melting and that really, yeah, that really horrified us. I think as soon as the credits started, we booked it. We didn't even stay there. We just, yeah, just legged it, as they say. Chris Bubach, best friend growing up. Shout out, Chris. Whoop, whoop. So the movie is about the handsome Indiana Jones, who has been hired to go on a fetch quest and find the Ark of the Covenant before the Nazis can grab it and use it to talk to God, right? Well, I hate to say it, but Indiana Jones plays no role in the outcome of this story. If he weren't there, the outcome would turn out the same. The Nazis would still have found the Ark, taken it to the island, open it, and all died. Just like they did. Also, there's a great theory that if Indy did nothing, the Nazis still would have lost, and all he did was hurt himself over and over and over. There's a, a sort of a popular hot take, notorious hot take about this movie that Indiana Jones himself has no effect on the plot. Now, the show The Big Bang Theory pointed out that if you take Indiana Jones out of the movie, that everything still happens, uh, that he didn't actually accomplish anything. He was just kind of there. Uh, it was popularized, that particular hot take, by uh, that TV show, the Bazinga show, the big Bazinga. <laughs> uh, apparently, a, a, a woman on that mentioned it. I mean, if you were in nerd circles at all, um, you'd probably heard that before that show that had been going around. Um, Because ultimately, the Nazis get the Ark, capture Indy, and get their faces melted off when they open it. Which is true, because if he hadn't dug up the Ark, the Nazis would have been pissed at Belloc and probably stopped the dig sooner or later. It's sort of the same vibes as, you know, the Rebels blew up the Death Star, they killed a bunch of innocent people. Like, that was a thing that was much debated in nerddom and then the first clerks kind of i feel like brought it to a wider audience which is beside the point that being said it doesn't mean the story wasn't entertaining because it absolutely is but yeah the the the, at least with the indiana jones hot take that's an utter horse take one can disprove it by simply watching the whole movie (laughs) at multiple points Indiana Jones does things, chooses to do things, takes actions that have an effect on the outcome of the plot. But I'd like to argue that that's not entirely true. I think 
I think the, the, the main thrust of that discussion is that without Indiana Jones, the Nazis would have eventually found Marion and eventually, you know, even if they had found Marion and then gotten to dig in the right place, they would have found uh, the Ark. I, I don't agree with either one of those. I think Indiana Jones needed to be the one to find Marion. He was the only one that knew she was in this, you know, small village in Nepal. So, yeah, I think that's at least some impact on the plot. And if they had not found her and Indy Jones still wasn't here, then they're just going to be digging around in the desert randomly. Uh, And, you know, I mean, spoiler alert, eventually Hitler falls from power. So it's not like they have infinite time to dig every square inch of the desert to find the Ark. Without Indy, the Nazis would have killed Marion and they never would have found the Ark in the first place. Also, God didn't want them to find it. <laughs> so, suck on that, hot takers. Um, meaning they probably wouldn't have had their faces melted off. So I think Indy, much like Moses, was an instrument of destiny, whether or not he knew it. Maybe they did find the Ark and they were like, oh, let's take it directly back to Hitler. Because uh, they had that super special plane. So it's probably going to take it directly to Berlin. That was best case scenario. Open the God-powered weapon in the heart of Nazi Germany. Would have saved the world a lot of heartache in a few years. One point um, that I do think is interesting to think about, though, is that um, after Indiana Jones and Marion um, get out of the Well of Souls, they blow up an airplane um, that I think was going to fly the Ark to Berlin. Uh, it's also... It's just wild to imagine that world where like they open they open the ark in a grand ceremony <laughs> headed by Hitler, perhaps filmed for propaganda purposes. And now suddenly we've got, you know, like an inglorious bastards rewrite of history ending, which um, just it's just fun to think about that as as an alternate ending to this movie. Overall impression, I, I liked the movie. Oh, this movie is so fun and entertaining. Raiders of the Lost Ark is my favorite movie of all time. It's a good start to the to the series, to the franchise. As I've said before, this is one of the best action-adventure films ever made. It changed my life. Overall impressions, uh, I do love this movie. The Indiana Jones, like the first three films. Yes, the remaining two. Not Kingdom. I don't mind Crystal Skull. I don't give a shit that aliens are part of the indieverse. These are movies that I really like to enjoy after an extended break, and I don't mean that in some type of a satirical way. They're so much fun that every time I watch them, I love it to be new. I love to forget as much as I can. And then when you rewatch it, it's like, oh man, you know, I forgot this part. This is so neat. And I feel like it kind of works. It's, it's not as like forgettable as like a Michael Bay movie, you know, the Transformers where there's so much going on that it's not like soaking into your brain. It's just, this is wild. Like there's so much happening and it's just so unexpected how well everything connects. It is one of Spielberg's best. And I'll even share that credit with George Lucas. I know that it hasn't aged super well with some of the special effects. Looking at you, melty faces. It's not going to be like Godzilla level of love, but like I really do love these movies. And I think it's one of those that like anyone should watch the first three films with repetition. I like the structure of how 
we establish who Indy is. He's leading kind of a, a, a double life, I guess. You know, not to the extent of Batman, but he's a professor in college. He's al- also an adventuring archaeologist who <laughs> does kill people. And there's some random choices. Uh, and has an established motive and beginning and end uh, in, in a, a good arc to the movie. Yeah, it's a different arc. Not not like the one that they're raiding throughout the movie, but like a character a character arc. <laughs> I got jokes. Like, how how did the snakes even get into that, like, tomb? I want to be clear that in our real world, ancient alien theory is absolute, utter horseshit and super racist to say, like, oh, these giant technological marvels of architecture that we see in our real world weren't made by those brown people. It was aliens. That's just utter trash. I don't think that is the case at all. Um, I disavow the theory entirely. Franchise connections. Um, So this isn't related to the films. This is actually going to go back to the video game, but I'm pretty sure it is the Raiders. So it's, it's either Raiders or Temple of Doom, but in the very beginning of the game, it's like you you go down, so it's probably raiders. You go down, and if you do something right, you can actually go further down than what was in the film, and you actually go into the Hoth scene, the opening scene of Star Wars Episode Five, which is absolutely great. So go play the f-ing game. And I'm not trying to advocate for that within the Indiana Jones IP. I just wanted to make it clear that in my mind, I'm drawing a line, a clear line between what we see ancient people have done in the real world was done by ancient people in the real world and the more heightened, exaggerated, crazy stuff that we see in the movie. It's fun to imagine that that was done by aliens as a justification for like, but wait a minute, we don't see these kinds of things in the real world. We'll be going through all of them, and I'm sure some people are going to have uh, some some thoughts. But anyway, but that doesn't mean it isn't still fun. It has everything you could possibly want in a film and promises to be a thrill ride. Movies are made to be entertaining, so if you're entertained by it, that's all that matters. But overall, very happy. I, I very much enjoy Raiders of the Lost Ark. Action, humor, thrills, chills, spills, and most importantly, characters worth rooting for. And having a dead sexy lead character doesn't hurt either. And with that, I'm going to go take a cold shower. It changed my life. This film should be required viewing for any cinephile. And it instantly established Indiana Jones as my favorite fictional character. And also just to find some things about me that are true to this day. Like, I love history and I think punching Nazis is great. I've been Elise. I'm from season four of the Super Switch Club. Uh, We're currently playing through the award-winning Nintendo 64 game Banjo-Kazooie and it's a really fun time. So go and give that a cheeky listen for some great laughs. And there you have it. Well, that's it for uh, for me, for Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't know about you guys, but I'm really excited to revisit the rest of this series as we're heading into Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny in theaters this summer, June 30th, 2023. Next time, however, we're watching one of my favorite indie adventures. Indiana's next adventure is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Well, previous adventure. That's right. 
Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Next time on Podcasters Assemble. If adventure has a name, it must be Indiana Jones. From Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Indiana Jones. And the Temple of Doom. You don't believe me. You will, Dr. Jones. To be continued. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll catch you later. Until next time, podcasters, assemble. Assemble, will ya? Podcasters Assemble is a production of the We Can Make This Work, Probably, podcast network. Find more of our shows at probablywork.com and learn how to contribute to future episodes of Podcasters Assemble by looking us up on Twitter and Instagram at Casters Assemble, or joining our Discord page. Link in the show notes. Submissions are always open. Intro written by Stephen White. Music by Deft Stroke Sound. Voiceover by Random Faceless Man in Front of a Microphone in a Basement. Goes by the first name Dave, last name Steel. This episode was edited by Eric Slater. Thank you to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to where you can find them all online. You can also help support this podcast by visiting patreon.com slash podcasters assemble. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network. Follow us on Twitter at Probably Work for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called ProbablyWork.com. All right, 30 minutes on Raiders. Let's see how long it takes to do the rest. Holy shit. Fuck Nazis.